0: Have you given any thought to what kind of year 2013 is going to be? Have you given any thought to that? Don't raise your hand. Just think Just think about it. Of course, if you think about it, then you will have given thought to it. I just realized I trapped you in my own trap there. And, I, and I'm not just talking about, well, yeah, I've given a thought because after 12 comes 13 and we know it's coming. But 13's an unlucky number and I'm a little bit scared. Have you given any good thought? Have you given any thought to, is it going to be a good year or bad year, stuff like that? Some of you go, well, no, Pastor, I don't have a crystal ball like apparently you do. I don't know the future. Well, I don't know the future either, but I do know that there are ways to know and a pretty high percentage about what kind of year you can have in the Lord. And it can be a good year, even if everything doesn't go your way. It can be a joyful year for you in the Lord. I'm going to show you how. If you brought your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be wrapping this up. I've had this series going since we started Impact Church a long, long time ago, and we're actually going to wrap the whole thing up. Uh, I realized that a lot of the people that some of you didn't know that, but I realized that a lot of the people that came for Christmas will probably come trickling in in January. Two of the lowest attended days of the year at any church are the weekend after Easter and the weekend after Christmas Eve and Christmas. Isn't that bizarre? That's because the, those who come, you know, twice a year, that just wore them slap out. I came to Christmas Eve. Oh, I can't do it. Can I need six months. I need some time to recover, and then I'll go to my second. I don't know what it is, but those are some of the lowest. I'm actually impressed that, that you all showed up. So cr- turn to Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, and if you don't know where that is, go to the book of Psalms, make a couple left-hand turns, and you'll be there, and let's pray. Father, pray that you will speak to us today as we try to really, uh, an ambitious thing here, Father, and trying to close out the book of Nehemiah and what was to take two weeks. We're going to try and do it just today, Father. And God, I don't want to miss any of the important things, and it's all important, Lord, but help us to hit the highlights, Lord, and not that they're just lodged in our brain, Father. That's not our goal here, and that's not yours, but that they would change our hearts and our behavior uh, ever being transformed to be more like you. So open the eyes and ears of our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, gang, you can know a little bit and you can sort of predict a little bit what your year is going to be like, um, but we can take it even further than that if we really want to. How about predicting what the rest of your life will look like? Wouldn't that be cool if you could predict how that's going to go? Doesn't matter if 212 was a horrible year for you. Well, I mean, it matters. It's, it's hard that way. It doesn't matter if 212 is the best year in your life. Because both play into what we're going to learn this morning in different ways. For those of you just joining us, since we're trying to wrap up Nehemiah, let me give you some background. I'll try to do this as quick as I can. Who's been here for the whole Nehemiah series? Liars, because it started in the MacGyver's home. There's only like 10 people. Come on, I just saw like 30 hands. You could have... Some of you, I was, there, I was there in the MacGyver's home. I see, I see three honest people in there. All right, I know. All right, here's the, here's the quickest background I can give you. The Israelites weren't following God. They were worshiping all kinds of false gods, and so God was patient with them. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet, but He said, if you don't come back, if you keep cheating on me, if you keep worshiping false gods and idols, then I will reprimand you. And One of the ways I'll do it is you won't have your land anymore. I'll take you out of the promised land. A nation stronger than you that I will support for this punishment will come in and take you captive. Well, they didn't listen, just like you know you and I sometimes don't listen, and the Babylonians came in led by Nebuchadnezzar, and they took all the Israelites they could by attacking Jerusalem, besieging it, and they've been gone now in captivity as we open this book for about 140 years. And for 140 years, there's been obviously different kings that have come and gone in, in Babylon and Persia and these different areas, but some of these kings, God uses them to send back remnants of people back to Jerusalem to try and get God's people reestablished on the mission and the vision that He gave them in the first place. But it doesn't really, really go until one prophet goes back by the name of Ezra, and he is, and he does manage to rebuild the temple. Now, that sounds good, right? To that young child, it sounds great. Uh, so that's it. I mean, that's temple worship. That's where, that's church going back in their day. So they're able to go back to church. Except there's one problem. Back then, the greatest defense that any people could have would be the wall around their city. And because the wall was not rebuilt, the people couldn't even go to the brand new temple and worship because they were scared. Every time they go to inside the city, they get mugged, they get harassed by the people groups around them. And so, it was almost worthless that the temple was rebuilt because it's, it's like empty churches that are not being used because everybody's scared to go there. So, Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the king, back in, uh, to the King Artaxerxes back in the Babylonian area, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and he gets a heart for his people. In Jerusalem. And without growing up there, obviously, since it's been so many years, he wants to go back and restore worship of the true God. He wants to rebuild that wall. Now, that wall has been attempted to be rebuilt many, many times over 140 years, over and over and over again. People go. They try to rally the people that live there. They try to rebuild that wall because they know that it's important, but they can't get it done. In fact, in 140 years, they couldn't even get it started. So, who does Nehemiah think he is? He's going to go back and He's going to accomplish what nobody else could? Well, if you've been with us, He did it. And that's where we're going to be opening in verse 1 of chapter 6. Let me read this for you. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah, and again, if you're just joining us, you don't know who those guys are, even though they're such common names. Don't name your kids Sanballat or Tobiah. These are bad guys. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and Gesheb, the the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. Okay, let's stop right there. Folks, it's done. It's done. That's the vision. That's what we've been studying the book of Nehemiah the whole time for. He had a vision for the people that they could do this even though they were few, even though they were scattered, even though they were poor and mocked and ridiculed. Nehemiah said, this is what God wants and that's all we need we have god's backing we can get this done well now it's done the wall's built nehemiah had a relatively small group of his fellow jews and they managed to do in 52 days 52 days what couldn't be, remember if you guys keep nodding and being quiet and not talking back to me like i like that i will walk among you And at times, get right in your face and see if you're writing notes. or Oh, you're taking notes in your Bible. That's good. I don't see any actual writing, but that was good. Fake job right there. And, you know, that's what I like about being right here on ground zero level here so I can see what's going on. Well, the wall's built, so mission accomplished. Nehemiah can go home, but Nehemiah stays another 12 years. And there's a great, great leadership principle, and you got to get this. Even though that's the vision and that's the initial thing, Nehemiah knows this isn't over. This, again, is just the beginning. Even though it's incredible leadership, Nehemiah's leadership doesn't stop with the finishing of the wall any more than ours would stop when we get a 501c3 and they officially say you're a nonprofit church. Okay, we're a church. Uh, We're done. Just show up here next week and we'll think of something to do, but we got our official paperwork, so that's it. No, I mean, there's a thousand churches in Charlotte and the surrounding area We want to be more than a church. We want to be a movement of God. We want to be an unstoppable force. We want to be the people that God called us to be about His mission and His purposes that He gave us. If you're not doing that, you're not doing anything right as a believer. That's what Nehemiah wanted. He wanted his people to be set up in Jerusalem, worshiping the one true God, and then doing the one thing that basically, gang, they'd never done. What's the one thing over a couple thousand years that Israel hadn't done, they hadn't accomplished? No, they've been they've been pretty faithful in sacrificing. What, what's the? One? I mean, it's it's bigger than that. Why the sacrificial system? Why the worship? Why all of it? What was their whole mission? This will help. They're a city on a hill, a light on a hill. They've been called many things. To what? To who? There it is, and I'm glad you got that because I was about to just come up and ask you personally if you're going to get that because we just weren't getting it here. I, you know what their mission was? Their mission was the same thing that our mission is. They're supposed to reach the lost. They're supposed to go out and say, our God is not our personal God that we keep to ourselves and won't share. He's our creator and your creator too, and he's changed our lives and transformed us, and we want to tell you about him. They didn't really do that at all. Almost nil. Nil. The prophets did it, and it bugged them so much, they killed most of the prophets. And so Nehemiah says it's not just about rebuilding the temple. It's not just about rebuilding the wall. Now you feel safe and comfortable. We're actually in potentially more dangerous spot right now than we were before because we can get complacent again and end up right back where we were. So listen to me. There's some things we need to be ready for. So here's, here's the situation. While the people are ready to partay, they're ready to celebrate. The wall is done. Nobody can touch us. Nehemiah is really watchful. As a leader, he's thinking, really, now is the time, Satan, if he's going to get us, it, it could be right now. This could be where we're really hurting. So I want you to write these things down. I've got several things I want you to get. And most of you don't have pens and paper. and We're going to get notes and get that whole thing going because I know how much all of you love to write while I'm teaching. So we'll get that going. But if you have any paper, pen to write on or you're card that's sitting there. You can write on the back of that, I guess, and then turn it in and I'll evaluate your notes. (laughs) I guess we'll, well, does you no good, does it? The first thing is complications. Write that down. First thing that Nehemiah knew is just because we're done with the dream and the vision that God gave us, it doesn't mean there's not going to be complications. There absolutely will be. I'm done. We're done. But Satan's not done. Listen to this. So far, Satan has tried to use, through these enemies, rumors, gossip, slander, threats, infiltration into the ranks of the Jews within the city, depression within the people, internal strife and division, and none of it's made a difference in stopping Nehemiah. He hasn't even skipped a beat. He's really a fantastic leader. He's on vision for God, and he never wavers. But listen, that doesn't mean, and it's very, very dangerous when believers think, this, that doesn't mean that Satan's going to quit. Satan doesn't look at any human being on earth and go, man, they're sharp. I, I don't know. I thought I was one of God's greatest created beings before I rebelled and all. But this human here, they outsmart me every time. I don't care how smart you are, how good you are, how wise you are, how sharp you are. You're, you, you are nothing to go up against Satan by yourself. So I always get, a, I always get baffled by these churches that say, we're going to have a big old service, and we're going to kick the, the devil's rear end. And we're gonna, You know what? The Bible says flee from him resist him and he will flee. You don't go looking for him. You don't go looking for trouble. In fact, your best defense against Satan is serving God, right in the, the safest place for believers, right in the heart of God's will. Don't go searching him out. But he realizes these things are going to happen. So, Satan doesn't give up. Here's another thing about Satan. Satan doesn't have good days. Did you know that? Wouldn't you hate that? Even the most bummer person sitting out there, depressed person. You you have some good days. Satan doesn't have good days. He gave that up when he sinned and rebelled. And so, what he does is he just, his hatred for God translates to hatred for God's people, and so he just keeps pounding away. And you need to know this, people. If you're a believer, he's not going to stop pounding away at you. I know there's churches you can go to that say, if you just get right in that zone if you just get right into God's will, that Satan will leave you alone and that's how you'll know that you're truly blessed of God. Tell that to the believers in China. Tell that to the believers in any Muslim country on earth. Tell that to to the believers in poverty. Tell that to the believers in Haiti. Tell that to any believers other than America, for goodness sake. Nobody teaches that except really here. I'm going to get to more of that in just a moment. So, Satan's going to work with strife without. That works most effectively in other countries. And to bring down Christians in the church, he's going to work with strife and division within, and if that doesn't work or starts to fall off a little bit, he'll go back out. Then he'll go back in, back out, back out, and he just keeps on going until he wants to spiritually wear you out. Now, Sam Ballad and Geshem sent to me saying, this is verse 2, "'Come and let us meet together at common commonplace we've all been to, on the plain of Ono. That one's a little bit easier. "'But they intended to do me harm.' All right, gang, no longer Sam Bowton to buy a mocking and laughing. They started out when there was no wall there or nothing but a crumbled down wall saying when they were starting to put stone upon stone and just getting the thing going, these guys would stand out with just a few men about the city and walk around it and mock them. One of the things they said was if a fox just jumped up on that wall, the weight of just the fox would crumble it. So they're ridiculing the work and ridiculing the builders and trying to make them feel less than what they were so that they would just quit. Everybody ever been pummeled by other people on the team or a coach or anything? He just felt like quitting. Anybody like that? <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of hands from guys. No, not me, man, because I was a stud. Nobody. I mean, I was the highest score. Guys never honest on that one, so I'm not even going to ask. Not even, but I have four girls raise their hand. Yes, yeah, it happened to me, and I'm just being on. So they're going to shift tactics here. They're not going to make fun of the construction or the people anymore. Obviously, that's pointless because the wall's done. Just as pointless as Satan continuing to try and make sure that a Christian or a believer never comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I said? That's as pointless for Satan to try and make sure that a believer doesn't come to faith in Jesus Christ. But some Christians think that's what Satan's trying to do. Oh, he's trying to take away my salvation. No, he's not. Oh, he's trying to make sure that I don't come, that I don't get saved. You're already saved. Why would he be doing that? And so there's a false doctrine that is taught that you can lose your salvation. Well, gang, you're not just saved. There's many ways the Bible talks about salvation, and one of them is adoption as sons and daughters in Christ. You know what that means? This means I know what that means, and some of you don't know. Well, gang, He's not going to de-adopt you. There's nothing in the Word of God that says, I'm mad at you today, therefore you are not my son or daughter anymore. He's not, that's it. You're eternally secure. So Satan's not going to use that tactic on a believer. He might get you to doubt or think he's using that, but his second goal is to shelve you. that makes sense? Well, the first goal is to make sure you never come to Christ, never come to faith. If you do come to faith, well, goodness sakes, we don't want you to be fired up. We wouldn't want you becoming a Jesus freak, right? So let's get you on the shelf, and let's get you comfortable, and let's get you in a place where you don't do anything like tell others about Jesus, because that would be a disaster. So that's his goal. But if you don't think that's his goal, then he's going to win. He's going to win. But, gangs, it's, it's obvious as if these enemies would keep mocking the construction of a finished wall that is obviously strong. That's pointless. Oh, look at the wall. They'll never get that done. Hey, dummy, it is done. Well, look how, look how weak it is. Well, kick it once. It's not weak. In fact, my wife and I have been to Israel. Remnants of the, of the wall in Nehemiah's time are still there. It's a pretty strong wall, so they give up on that tactic, and they shift just a little bit to the people in the construction to the man again. He's been doing uh, Sambal Sam and Tobiah and Geshem and all the, the people groups around here, but especially those three leaders have been doing this a lot. They're trying to take out the man at the top because if they can, even though the wall's built, it won't matter. They'll think Nehemiah wasn't a great leader anyway if they can get him so there was little left for Sam Boughton to buy and the rest of the Lord's enemies to do at this point when the wall was finished. So they go back to old tactics. Evil people are into recycling. That's what I get out of this. I'm just saying, any tree huggers here? Am I out on a limb? Is that bad? Okay, I've got a couple. Just lost them. This is their last week here. It's right here in the text. I'm just saying. So again, they start making fun of Nehemiah's project, then making fun of Nehemiah, then the project, then the people, then Nehemiah. You really can't argue, however, gang, with success. You really can't look at something that's really, really working and say it's not working. You have to shift tactics. You can, though, you can't say that it's not working, but you can ridicule the person behind it. I think I've told you guys this before over um, a lot of years in ministry, I've said this before, that there were books written in the 60s Uh, that politicians now use, and one of them was talking about how to win a debate or win an argument when you don't have the best point or even when you're completely wrong. You know how you win? It's called the politics of ridicule. And I I, I wish it wasn't true, but it works. It works. If If you're just getting trounced in a debate and you have all the facts and you're talking and you're kind of winning this thing, just make fun of people. And people wrote books about this, and I'm not going to tell you which party accepted this <laughs> and follows it, but one of the parties actually has this and follows it it's it's one of their doctrines when they're losing, and you can read about this, so i was I was thinking about picking on one of you guys and trying to debate a little bit and then just start making fun of you, but that's that's probably not good, So we'll skip past that part. And that's what they're going to do with Nehemiah. They're going to start attacking his character, and they're going to start saying ridiculous, outlandish things that are absolutely not true in the hopes of cutting Nehemiah down lower and lower and lower, and the people will just give up on following him. Some strange tactics they're taking here. Verse 3 again, and I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Now, listen, don't take this wrong. Nehemiah is not saying, I'm doing a great job because I'm great and man, I'm good at this. I'm just the best leader. He's not bragging. Rather, he said, I'm involved in the Lord's work, which by definition is the greatest work that any one of us can be involved in. That's all he's saying. He said, I know what God wants me to do. I'm not foggy on that. He's really clear on this mission, and that's what I'm doing. So exactly what could you have for me to stop doing this work, to come down and meet you, who have been our enemy the whole time we've been doing this, that's more important than the Lord's work? Nothing. So I'm not going to stop, and I'm not going to come down. That makes him look a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, do you think that at all when you read this? Like, wow, I mean, I mean, maybe they're trying to reconcile. Maybe they're trying to make up with him. I promise you they're not. No, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to kill him, and that becomes plain a little bit later here. Gang, in my life, I can't tell you how many people feel called to have me explain every single move that I do in the Lord, even moves I've done over and over and over again and explained in Scripture. Can you explain that to me personally again? Over lunch, we just had lunch last week. Well, how about breakfast this time? I'm clearer in the morning. No, I'm not going to come down and keep recycling what God has made so clear in my life. There comes a time when we all have to realize there are good and evil people out there, and instead of letting rumors do the talking, here's what you do. Here's what Nehemiah had to do. Look up here. Here's what Nehemiah had to do. He couldn't meet with all these enemies and sit down and go, listen, that's not the way it went. Here's how it went down. So finally, he just said, you know what? I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to be a man of prayer. I'm going to be a man who knows the Word of God, and I'm going to just keep on going forward. And you know what? Eventually, you work on your character, and God will work on your reputation. You work on your own character and let God worry about your reputation. That's what He did. By the way, I'm thinking about somebody else who was called a drunkard and a partier and a friend of sinners, and man, his reputation was, his character was just maligned constantly. And he got out pretty good. Talking about Jesus, the only one who never sinned. How come all that stuff they called Him didn't stick? You ever wonder about that? I mean, the politics of ridicule were never used more on any individual who ever lived than on Jesus Christ but it didn't stick. In fact, over the years, he's come to be known for who he is. He's the God-man, and he never sinned. How do you come out of that much ridicule unscathed? Because if you'll work on your character, God will take care of your reputation. He did it for himself. So, I'm saying this simply. Let me put it in layman's terms. Don't go out to meet all your critics. Not all of them. Consider the source. Consider what's behind it. Then decide whether God's telling you you need to meet this one or not. Gang, sometimes all we need to do is let somebody else take care of it too. Let somebody else return a phone call. Let somebody else's. For me, I let, where is he? Where's my buddy? Where's Pete MacGyver? I know he's here somewhere. Oh, you're here. You're, are you, you getting this? Pete and I took a test. What was the name of that test that we took? Style, SOI. What was that thing? Style of influence, right? We're polar opposites. (laughs) We could not be any more different. He should hate me. He should want to kill me. I mean, the way that we're lined up, I am nothing like Pete MacGyver. But guess what? Perfect compliment. As far as working together, perfect compliment. Where I am blind, my blind spots, this guy's got me covered. His blind spots, which I haven't found one yet, I intend to have him covered when I can find a blind spot in his character somewhere. I'm like, this is good stuff here. Sometimes all we need to do is get, a lot of times when people are doing stuff, I'm a hothead. Sometimes I jump in the last two or three months of my life and, and become very close friends with this man. I've let him, talk, I've talked to him first. There's several others sitting out here that I feel the same way about. And I let him return phone calls. He's just really good. By the time you talk to Pete MacGyver, you will be weeping on your knees and in repentance. I don't even know how he does it, but you're going to be doing that. So, gang, I don't think it's the complications that really get, that that Satan even intends to get people down. I really want you to pay attention to this part because this is where American evangelicalism goes south. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I'm convinced that it isn't the complications themselves that do most Christians in. It's the fact that we have any complications at all. I know that sounds bad, but think about what I just said. It's true. That we have any complications at all. Let me explain What happens is there's a false teaching out there, and I know I teach about it a lot because I think it's doing more damage to evangelicalism than probably, honestly, anything, anything. How could it be that God's only way to bless you and show that He loves you is for you to have perfect health, unbelievable wealth, and overall prosperity, health, wealth, and prosperity? How can that be the only way? When you look at countries where people are living for look at Mother Teresa, for goodness sake, how she lived her life. I mean, she had the popularity part, but probably not even two dimes, two nickels throw up together. She wasn't wealthy, but she was prosperous in the Lord. Look at people imprisoned around the country. I keep thinking about the pastor that's imprisoned. He's been in prison for a couple of years now in Iran, who did nothing but preach the word. They've accused him of everything, from rape to attempted murder to undermining the government, just everything. None of it's true. He's just a born-again Christian. He hasn't seen his family in a couple of years, and they've threatened to execute him over and over again. And we look at that, and we think, and I've heard people say, even about him, well, he must have done something. You know how heartbreaking that is to the Lord? Well, he must have done something wrong. But it's not not a new thought. Even the disciples, when they're following Jesus, and there's two blind men crying out to Jesus saying, thou son of David, heal us, hear us. Any of you remember that? What did his boneheaded disciples ask him? Anybody remember? <clears throat> Excuse me. Which uh, what sin did they do, or who sinned? Was it them or their parents that put them in this situation? And Jesus said, "You knuckleheads!" What you? That's my translation. That's what he said to them. It's neither. Do you know why they're like this? For this very moment, they're they're in that condition right now because I'm passing by right now and I'm going to heal them. It's going to be a great testimony. Nobody sinned here. I mean, everybody sins, but this isn't a result of sin. And that's a part of it. That's the roots of the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. That right there says, well, if if your life is not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, then you are a sinner and cursed by God. And if it is healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, then God loves you and favors you. But I'm going to show you in just a moment how that can completely derail you as a believer. According to the strict adherence to, the, to this doctrine, a lack of blessing in these areas means we're either living in sin or living with a lack of faith. And I used to go to a couple, I mean, I, again, I, I didn't have Pete MacGyver at the time, so I'd shoot off my mouth. I used to go when I lived in California um, to some of these big faith healer things and sometimes get mouthy with them a little bit. You know why? Because people were in the back rows in wheelchairs. There were Vietnam vets back there. There were people with cerebral palsy, people with obvious things, and they're up there dealing with the bad backs and the can you hear me say baby and all this kind of junk going on. Remember those remember that guy? Who's that guy that used to wear the wig up to here and say, say baby? Ernest Ainsley, remember him? I'm glad you don't remember him. Forget him if you remember him. Have your memory erased if you need to. I mean, there are guys like that that, that that, I mean, they're frauds. Otherwise, God can do all the greatest healings. He raised people from the dead. You think He can't cure the people that are blind? It's the same God. So they would do this, and they would just mock and say, well, the reason they're not getting healed back there is because they don't have strong enough faith. How dare you say that? How dare you say it? They probably have way stronger faith than the fake faith healers have. That's for sure. So there's this teaching that goes wrong on that end and wrong on the other end. It says, if you're sick, you're cursed. If you're healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, you're blessed. And that's it. End of story. Can't find this in the Bible anywhere. Some people will debate me and say, well, yeah, there were a lot of godly people that were blessed this way. Yes, they were because you know why? Here it is. Write it down. I don't see pens poised. You know why they're blessed that way? Here's the secret. Because God chose to bless them that way, period. That's it. Some people are blessed with a huge family of godly children. Some people are are blessed with wealth. Some people aren't wealthy, but they're blessed with great health. Some people are blessed with incredibly sharp minds. Some people aren't. I mean, there's all kinds of blessings. (laughs) Right? There's just different blessings in life. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, if you're walking with me, it happens these three ways only. Nowhere. You know what I think it is? It's an indication that your God is yourself and that your God is your appetite. If you want those three things, check your heart. By the way, don't hear me saying that to be wealthy is bad, that to be healthy is bad, prosperous. It's not bad at all. It's when you worship it, just like money. Is money bad? No. Is money good? No. (laughs) It's paper. It's just money. It's how you use it and your heart towards it. By the way, if that doctrine were true, then that makes all the disciples utter failures. Most of them were poor. Most of them were martyred. In fact, you know what makes the biggest failure of all? The leader of the movement, Jesus. It is very, very unhealthy to be crucified. It is very, very poor to be homeless, which He was. He said, the Son of Man, the foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. What does that mean? Jesus just wandered around living with other people who's homeless. Kind of the opposite of this doctrine, right? It's false. Now, what are the dangers? Okay, pastor, so some people want to believe that. Let them believe it. What's the danger? The danger is that's the number one way that Satan will shelve you. I don't get it. How do, well, when you achieve that, and that's why I was asking you to think about 2013 a little bit. But when you achieve perfect health, wealth, and prosperity, you go, man, this is a great year of that. What are you going to do? You don't want to mess it up. So you go on cruise control. And I've seen many Christians go into early spiritual retirement because they thought, God's blessing me now. I don't want to mess it up. And they don't do anything for the Lord. Well, how could that be God's will? So not only is it wrong, it's dangerous. There's several dangers coming from that. What happens when you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous? Were you just scrambling and living for yourself even though you think you're living for God until you acquire those things? That's one of them. Number two, you see yourself as a failure and it's cursed by God until He blesses you and blesses you in those three ways only. So Nehemiah has already planned for the complications to just keep right on coming in his life, and it doesn't steal his joy. He just knows they're going to come in this life until I see the Lord face to face. Then they'll stop. Then they'll stop. The fact that the wall is finished doesn't slow his sharp mind down at all. Far more importantly, good times and a bit of comfort now for Nehemiah do not make for a complacent prayer life or, or for him not to get into the into the Torah and God's law. He gets into the Word even deeper, and his prayer life stays strong. That's another threat of the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine on its own, that false thing. When you get to that zone, why would you pray? You've already arrived. Why would you spend time searching God's Word? You've already arrived. Do you see the dangers in it? And I've heard people say, well, you harp on it too much, and it makes it sound like you don't want anybody to be healthy, wealthy, or you're prosperous. Why wouldn't I? I just don't want you to worship it, and neither does God. And some of you are going, it's not that big a problem. I don't worship it. Jesus said, it's the biggest problem and the biggest competition for your heart that you and I will ever face our entire life. And if he said that, then I 'm going to agree with him and say that it's a big problem, a potentially big problem. For some people, two twelve was a good year. Some people, not very many that I know, but some people. No nasty stuff happened. In fact, it was so good, like I said that the the, 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 the temptation to stutter. That the temptation now is for you to just sort of sit back and say to yourself, you know what, this year was so good for me, I'm just going to be careful. I'm just going to kind of live in cruise control and make sure that I show God how much His blessing means and that I've earned a season, translation, the rest of my life of a break where I can live just a little bit for me. Watch out for that. So, Nehemiah knows there will be trouble in this life until we see the Lord face-to-face. The trouble now has shifted, and Nehemiah is sharp. You and I need to be sharp as well because Satan is going to shift tactics all the time according to how you're thinking or how close or actually how far away from the Lord you are. Now, Sam Sambal and Tobiah, I don't know any other way to say it other than to say they've kind of gone underground, Gang. They're not in Nehemiah's face anymore. They keep sending these messages after him, but they're not appearing themselves. Nehemiah's so sharp that he really I think one of the reasons he doesn't meet with them is because they don't meet with him. Does that make sense? They're not showing up anymore. They used to stand right outside the wall, teasing him, making fun of him, ridiculing him. Now he can't find them anywhere. All right, now they've moved into their parents' basement. They got themselves a computer, and they're, they're anonymously blogging at him. That's all that they can do because they're afraid of the people that have rallied behind Nehemiah, and they realize everything's working, so they go, we're going to have to undercut this guy, and we're going to have to do it sort of stealth-like. So they live with their mommies now, and they're taking pot shots at him. And again, I'm going to say that, uh, verse 3 yet again to see how Nehemiah responds. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. So, again, it's not that Nehemiah is too good to respond. He's saying, I've dealt with you. You know, call a spade a spade. I know what you are. I know your character. I'm not going to come down at all. We've been through this. I'm not meeting with you. Again, I'm just involved in a great work of the Lord that is a movement of God. All right, here's the, that was the first thing, and that only took me 20 minutes, and we've got seven of them. So, let's hustle. It's your fault somehow. Number two, celebrate. When the Lord gives you a dream or a vision and it's accomplished, celebrate. I know a lot of people are like, there's a lot of work to do and we need to be out there. Well, are you happy that this much? Are we happy about last week that all those people got saved? Yeah, I am. I'm thrilled. Well, let me tell you something you might have missed about yourself. This is probably my 10th time through the book of Nehemiah and I missed it every time. I don't know how I missed this one. It's probably the biggest thing in there kind of an A and B thing with this celebration. A, God is doing a great work both within you and within the body. See, I was looking at everything Nehemiah was doing and going, look how he's changing the people. Look how he's changing the city. Look how he's rallying them. They're all worshiping God now, and everything's great. I kind of forgot about Nehemiah. But, gang, or you maybe forget about yourself while you're serving. But, gang, it's within that serving that you're doing that God's changing your heart too, This is what's so cool here. He'll do a great work within you, and if it's enough of us, he'll do a great work within this whole body. And if this whole body is strong and unstoppable, he'll do a great work within this whole community. And if the community knows about it, it'll begin to spread beyond that. That's how a movement works, and that's what we're trying to be about here. Celebration's my shortest part, though. Number three, more complications. (laughs) 3B, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah is basically saying, why should I come, come down and meet with you, or why should I respond to your email or anonymous text or personal, personally comment on your comment on my blog? And the same questions are valid today. The methods are just different, right? The enemy still wants to eat up your time and fill up your meetings with arguing for hours with people who have no intention of changing their minds. Listen, gang, Sandballot did not want to reconcile with Nehemiah. Do you believe for a second that Sam or Tobiah or Geshem or any of them were just kind of looking at everything and going, you know what, Um, everything's gone his way, and I can really see God's blessings, so maybe we're wrong. Does anybody think that for a second they thought that? Now, logically, they should have thought that, right? Because it's really obvious. But they don't. People that don't want to follow God are blind to God, completely blind to God. Where does this come from? Well, quickly, turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. I go here a lot because I think it's one of the most pivotal chapters in all the Bible. So much hinges on this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's in in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Listen closely as I read or follow along. It's from the ESV. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, that's just another word for sin, by their sinful lifestyle, suppress the truth. Okay, what does your sinful lifestyle do? It makes you miss the obvious. So what do they do when they miss the obvious? Well, obviously, if you're missing God in anything, then you're going to sin more. And the more you sin, the more you're going to miss God. So, it's a pretty vicious cycle, isn't it? So, you just keep on sinning, and the worse you get, the further away from God you get, and your chances of getting close to God are now narrowing, and you're hanging by a thread. This is what actually happened to Sambon and Samaya. They're seeing the obvious right in front of them, but their sinful lifestyle and their greed is suppressing the truth. For what can be known about God, now this applies to all of us, is plain to them, unbelievers, because... God has shown it to them, for the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, wake up in the morning, open your eyes, look outside, and you know there's a God. Well, that might be your opinion. No, this is God's Word. It's not my opinion. It's God's opinion. I agree with that opinion. In other words, the fact that there is a God is obvious, gang, obvious. They've been clearly perceived. you like that? Not they've been vague and foggy, and you really have to hunt this down. You know what Paul is saying? Through the Holy Spirit, he's saying, you got to be a knucklehead to miss this. A five-year-old wakes up. They believe in God. They look outside. They they look at all the joys, and they go, I want to meet God. You know how children are? And then you grow up, you get cynical, and you lose that. God's saying, it's still obvious. So obvious, a little kid can figure it out. It's not that it's not obvious. It's how far your sin is suppressing the truth. You're getting further and further away because you love your sin ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that, here's the most indicting part, so that they, who's they? Everyone, are without excuse. So the people that ultimately play the no God card, you know, the atheist or agnostic card, Paul says they're really playing the I love my sin better than the God I know is out there card, which is a longer card to say. But that's the other. I love my sins so much, I know God's out there. I used to know. I think I knew. No, I don't believe in God. Saying, no, you love your sin so much, you forgot that you used to believe in me. And you forgot how elementary it really was. Sandballad is basically an ancient day Al Capone. That's what he is. <clears throat> Pastor Rob, how did we get from loving our sin to Al Capone? It was a little bit of a leap. Not really. Because what did Sambal and Tobiah do? And I know some of you weren't with us in the beginning of the series as we close out. What, what did they do before Nehemiah and his entourage arrived? What did they do? They were shakedown artists. They made people pay them off. They were loan sharks. They got money from businesses. They ran the place. They were powerful. And now all of that is over. They loved that lifestyle. That lifestyle was sinful. That lifestyle made them see God's works right in front of their face and deny it and say, that's not God. That's the danger in that. All right, next thing. The complications are now moving into confrontations. It's not over. Yet another shift in tactics is to spam Nehemiah's inbox. If you read this real carefully, I, I don't get why he would just keep doing this. Sandballot sent 10 messages altogether. He sends a messenger. Nehemiah says, I don't have time. I know. I'll send another one. I told you I don't have time. I'll send five more. I don't have time. Well, then there's three more. He just he's trying to wear him out with this. But that's not all he's doing is sending messengers. He's also telling everybody, it's not me. I've been trying to get a hold of, I want to reconcile. I want this thing to work. I've been sending messages, but if you keep reading in Scripture here, why does he want, you know what the messages say, by the way? You don't. Okay, we'll keep going, and then you'll find out what they say. Things like, here's the, here's the spam in the inbox, if you really read it in the um, Rob Singleton translation. Nehemiah, my name is Nia Ballet, and I'm a distant relative of yours from Nigeria, and I want to leave you all my inheritance. Just meet me in the middle of the desert, unarmed, and yada yada yadda. Here's another one I thought I saw. Or having trouble with the missus? Spice up your love life with pharmaceuticals from Sandballad and Tobiah. Filling his inbox with that. Here's another one. Maybe a barrage of tweets as they hack into his account. It says, hey, Nehemiah, someone's tweeting horrible things about you. Just text me all your information. And I'll clear it up for you. Scamps, none of these are true, and they're designed to get you to give them something that gives them an advantage. What was the advantage for Sam Ballot. Gang, Sam Ballot can't go into Jerusalem anymore. God's doing such a mighty work here. They know who the enemy is. I mean, that'd be the end for him. The only thing left he's got is let's get Nehemiah out of, away from the people. Let's get him down from that wall, out of the leadership. Let's get him out into the desert, and we will kill him. That's all I've got left. If that doesn't work, I'm gonna have to flee. Thank goodness it didn't work. But we all know the drill. These things are called time wasters at best and harmful scams and maybe life-threatening at worst. They They are potential confrontations that we either decide to engage in, gang, or ignore. That's up to you. Sometimes they're so worthless that the Bible will say things like, don't cast your pearl before. What does that mean? That means that you have something of great value, but don't keep wasting your time on the one person who doesn't want to hear anything you have to say. Could you imagine Nehemiah quitting the whole job and just saying, "I'm gonna spend all my time with Sam Ballett till I win him to the Lord"? Well, no, that's a waste. He's won a lot of people back to worshiping the one true God, but Sam Bell's not one of them. He's clearly not listening. So, know what Nehemiah does? He's not very computer literate, but he's familiar with one button: delete, 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 delete. So, when negotiation fails, Sam Balot resorted to incrimination again sending, Scripture says, the ninth or tenth thing was an open letter. Now, this is back before any kind of copying stuff. So, he gets scribes. He gets people to copy this letter over and over and over again. He gets it read to the people, somehow smuggles it into the city. And it's like writing to the Charlotte Observer, Disturber, whatever you want to call it, an article, a false article about Nehemiah. And this article said, what Nehemiah was really doing is he's usurping Artaxerxes' throne, and he wants to take over, strengthen up Jerusalem, and then go attack Artaxerxes, which is ludicrous. Artaxerxes is the one who funded his good friend Nehemiah's project. And what's more, Sam Ballatt knows that. I forgot, how does Sam Ballott know that? Do you guys remember how he knows that? Because when Nehemiah and his entourage and his soldiers first came from Artaxerxes... They brought letters sealed from King Artaxerxes, and they had to present them to the governors. And one of the governors that is mentioned is a man by the name of Sambaut. So Sambaut broke the seal, opened the letter, and read it. He knows that Nehemiah is supported by King Artaxerxes. So he knows very well, the thing I just did put in the Charlotte Observer is completely false. But the politics of ridicule are pretty effective. So he keeps going. The same way Sambaut for the fifth time, this is backing up a little bit, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And as it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, my other enemy, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. So, there it is. You can't make this stuff up. Guys, look up here a minute. Every brother and sister in Christ goes through this accusation. I mean, every brother and sister in Christ goes through all kinds of accusations, but I'm talking about anyone who wants to move out and do a, a great ministry or a, be a part of a great movement from God. Will go about. Th- will, will come in front of or encounter this exact accusation. I'm not talking about the many things Satan does. He will do this. It may sound different. Let me give you some of the different ways it might sound. It might sound like, "Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it really for God?" You ever heard that? Let's see which other ones I wrote down here. I know why you're doing this. You just want to be up front. You know who sees this a lot? Musicians, pastors. Oh, you just like being in front of people. That's why you're doing this. These are familiar accusations. You're doing this to build your own empire. I've got friends in ministry at churches that are five, 10,000. They've heard this over and over and over again. Thousands have been saved, but the critics are you know, like I said, bloggers in their pajamas in their parents' basement. He's doing this just for himself to be, well, maybe you're blogging about what you can't do because you never stepped out in faith for the Lord in the first place, like that guy. It's easy to be a critic, super easy, tough to step out in faith. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. I wish I was more like Nehemiah. This guy is so calm. This is this is the Pete MacGyver again. Here he is. Again, he keeps showing up. No, in other words, he's saying, those are great accusations, very creative, but they're all untrue. No such things have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I love it, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not get done. So, number five, concern. Concern. The last part of verse 9 says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. I love this because I know that Nehemiah could sometimes come across as a Superman, a no fear kind of guy, but that wasn't it. It's just that Nehemiah is not going to let fear stop him. Nehemiah got anxious. Nehemiah got worried sometimes. Nehemiah didn't eat. He fasted for extended periods of time. He, he According to chapter 1, it looks like he might have had stomach issues and all, but he plowed ahead anyway. So, many of you have heard me say this before, but courage is not wearing those dumb shirts no fear. Whenever I see somebody wearing that, I'm going, that's a guy who's afraid of everything. He's putting that shirt out there so people leave him alone. These stuff. But it's not just saying no fear. It's maybe feeling the fear and what God asks you to do, but having the courage to go forward anyway. That's what Nehemiah's got. He felt fear like anybody else. So it's not that Nehemiah is a God machine, always having all the right moves and never worrying or fretting about anything or being afraid. It's just at how he handles them. And what's the number one thing that Nehemiah does when he has any kind of doubts about anything he's doing? We've learned this. And, and for those of you, again, that are just joining us, he was a prayer warrior. That's why prayer is such a big part of the DNA here. Every time I come up to preach, and this is now the 13th week, Ooh, that's kind of ominous, isn't it, of the church, back behind here and, and in the hallway there, there are prayer rooms. And you know, Throughout my ministry, it was hard sometimes to get three or four people praying before a service. No matter what we did, here sometimes there's 20, 30, or even 40 people praying in this group before a service. You're like, how do you know this is going to be a great church? you know this is going to be a great movement of God? That's how I know right there. That's how I know right there. Prayer, be- any great movement starts with prayer. And that's where Nehemiah went, he went to his knees and prayed whenever he was worried. There's a couple things that you can learn from Nehemiah's prayers and the results of them. I'll just give these to you real quick. Number one, never stop the Lord's work for man's gripes. Never stop the Lord's work for man's gripes. Oh, it can't be none. Oh, we've never done it that way before. Oh, we've always done it this way. If you know God's calling you to do something, then do it. Just do it. Again, Sam Ballot wasn't interested in restoration. He wanted to get Nehemiah away from the people, and Nehemiah knew that. Number two, When you don't know what to do when you pray, also return to the Word of God. If you're a little foggy, if you don't have direction, return to this book, and God will give you direction. Now, they didn't have the whole book, obviously, back then, but they had the law and and the first five books, and Nehemiah would look to that. Now, chapter 8 of this book is all about the people gathering. I'm going to give you a couple more things, and we're going to wrap this whole book up. So, we're going a little bit longer this week, or as I check the time, normal. Chapter 8 is all about the people gathering regularly to hear the reading and explanation of God's Word from guess who? The prophet Ezra. Who's that? Ezra's the one that came back 20, 30 years earlier to rebuild the temple and attempted to rebuild the wall, but he couldn't get it done. Now that Nehemiah's got this done, they're worshiping in the temple again, and what's the first thing they do? They bring out the books of the law, they gather the people, and they stand there. Are you ready for this? For three hours, standing Listening to the Word of God. Some of you are going, I'm thinking about chilies right now. They got this um, Cajun rubbed down steak that I was going to think of. three hours. Listening to the Word of God, and all uh, verses one through three of chapter eight. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the Water Gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the Book of the Law of Moses. That the Lord had commanded Israel, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, even little kids, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. I'm sorry, it was longer than I thought. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, just say it, children. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You know, it's amazing how we've changed, isn't it? Last night, my family and I went to go see The Hobbit. That sucker's almost three hours long. I, I didn't even fade. Didn't even fade away at the risk of spoiling it, especially the part where, no, I'm not going to tell you that. But, I mean, how come we can sit there for three-hour movies just in, in rapture, and if the preacher goes beyond 30 or 40 minutes, we're going, Lord, help me. My knees are buckling. Even I'm sitting down. I can't sit in these chairs. They're so painful. I'm, I mean, what? look at how it's changed. The people here are riveted, and you know what Ezra's doing? There's no application or anything. He's just reading. But he's reading the powerful Word of God. It's not an ordinary book. Friends, prayer and Bible reading are the best one-two punch combinations against Satan that you can have, period. Period. If He's eating your lunch right now and your life's not going right, try those two things. Chances are you're not spending much time in prayer, and you're probably not reading God's Word. This can't be a seasonal thing. It must be a decision made in this area of your life to read the Bible and spend time in prayer for once for all. Scripture says, Thy Word hath I hidden my heart that I might not sin against Thee. How do you hide the Word in your heart? Well, that's going as far as to memorize it. To know it so well, you know exactly where to go for everything. And here's another thing in chapter nine. The whole chapter, chapter nine, is about confession. After they heard the law read to them, you know what it did? It broke their hearts, and they confess. Confession's good for the soul. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9. On October 31st, the people assembled again. I think I did this in the message. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads and ashes. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their sins. Why is that? Because they're they're racist? No. Because they were, t- they were dealing with their sin. They said, this isn't about what you guys have done. This is about what we have done right now. So we need to have a time of repentance. They confess their sins and the sins of even their ancestors. Wow. They're going back generations to what got them in this mess in the first place. And they remain standing in place, this time with confession thing, for three hours. Again, this is our 13th week, and again, we're going to close out today the way we have closed out every single week since we were in the MacGyver's home, which is with what? Communion. Why are we doing this? Because at least part of communion is a chance, a very powerful chance for you and I to confess our sins. How come we don't like doing that? Haven't you ever heard the saying, confession is good for the soul? Then why don't we like doing that? Because again, our society, even evangelically, is upside down. We don't want to confess certain things because we think certain sins will get people to look at me a different way, and then I'm supposed to be this or that, and I'm supposed to be viewed that way. So we go to church, and we fake it, and we fake it. What could be worse or less effective than going to God's house and putting on masks? That's what we do at so many churches but they confessed, and it's powerful. So, let me finish with this. How then shall we live? How should we live? I can think of no better way than for two reasons. One, there's a difference between a dreamer and a visionary. This is what we learned from Nehemiah, that Nehemiah makes very clear in the close of the book here. It's not enough to just be a dreamer. How should we live? Well, let's dream about great big things for God. No. Let's be visionaries for God. That means let's... Let's go to His Word, let's pray, let's fast, let's learn what He wants us to do, and then let's set goals and let's do it. Let's get the job done. Now, you know what? I've dreamed about doing this for God. Well, have you ever got out of your chair? Well, no, because because why? It's a partnership. God could do it without you, but it's a blessing that He chooses to do it with you, that He partners up. It's interesting, the New Year is always a time for resolutions, but, gang, you know what resolutions are? They're just empty decisions without goals. This year, I make a resolution to, well, what's, what power is in that? Did a series a, a while back called Resolution Revolution. We really need to have a revolution from those things and say, I'm going to make some lifetime decisions and then change the way I live my life. It's sort of like looking at the end of your life, your epitaph of what's going to be written on your tombstone and saying, I really want this to be written. So I'm going to back up and live my life pointing it at that outcome, like King David did, mostly, mostly. Look at me. I did this last week. It's not even New Year's yet officially, and I'm already reminiscing. But why not? Look how quickly in our culture Christmas is forgotten. You guys ever notice that? Earlier and earlier we're getting ready for Christmas, And as soon as it is over, it's forgotten. Why does our culture want to forget it so quick? Because the chances when it's officially over of you buying gifts anymore are nil, so goal's off. But the sooner they can get you thinking about it, the sooner they can get you worshiping that God, which is money, and buying gifts. But when they know that chance is over, they're going to give that up. But we shouldn't. In fact... It is now that the work of Christmas really begins. That's the way that we need to be thinking about Christmas, the spirit of it all year long. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the work that you're doing here, Lord, this launch team that you're assembling. Lord, help us to realize that every member's a minister. God, I pray that if people come here and say, you know what, I believe God's calling me to be a part of this, that they'll realize that we, we're not fans, Father. We say that unapologetically because we don't believe you want any fans. Father, we think you want, we know you want followers. Help us to bring a our large team of followers together, Lord. We've been praying for 400 followers before we launch, Lord, before we become official, hopefully on Easter, Lord, and, and we believe we're going to do a great work. Keep working in our hearts individually and as a body to do great things for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. Happy New Year.